What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Some of the stories Jay and I take a look at in this episode include uh, stories relating to Wells Fargo, their CEO testimony for Congress, the resignation of two board members going forward. The John Wood Group reserves $46 million for anti-corruption settlements. Dylan Tokar reports in the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. Is Unified Transaction Monitoring a Panacea? Sujata Dasgupta explains this issue. Is every email an FCPA violation? Bill Steinman considers. The OCC has some excellent guidance around third parties. Matt Kelly considers this in radical compliance. Wow Moments in Compliance Part 4, Gert Verlund continues his five-part series in Risk and Compliance Platform Europe. What are some of the dangers of a hyper-focused sales culture? Mike Volkov explores in Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. The Supply Chain and Coronavirus and the Global Supply Chain blog, a new blog out, and the new economic crime levy in the United Kingdom, Jonathan Rausch considers in dipping through compliance. Finally, Banks Behaving Badly, parts 3,888 and 3,889, as banks continue to do everything they can to rip off their customers. We take a look at some of the top podcasts this week on 31 Days on the more effective compliance program uh, featuring innovation in compliance in the month of March and sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Neither Jay and I are traveling, so uh, no speech is coming up, but I know you will enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for This Week in FCPA, episode 196 for the week ending March 13, 2020, the We Won't Screw You Again edition. Uh, As the new Wells Fargo CEO tells Congress that things are really different this time, uh, we reflect on the corporate scandal that may never leave us and the week that was in coronavirus and some of the other top stories. So, Jay, a little bit somber note this week. Um, The uh, president gave uh, perhaps the worst speech ever um, Wednesday night. Um, showing a complete lack of understanding of everything about coronavirus. The market's tanked. Uh, We've lost football, baseball, hockey, golf, tennis, soccer, theater, movies, uh, and every other sport. Uh, We're in shutdown mode in uh, sunny Houston, Texas, waiting for the heat to kill off the coronavirus. How about in Southern California? Uh, We've been getting some well-needed rain, but it's uh, it's a bit somber out here. And uh, uh, FYI, no toilet paper or paper towels on the shelves here in Simi Valley. So if uh, we're cleaned out, you must uh, wonder what the other cities in California are going through as well. I was at an event Tuesday, and I actually heard one of the greatest lines ever. A person introduced himself at a roundtable, 
And he said, uh, and I just want everyone here to know that uh, I've been a lifelong purchaser of toilet paper. And for those of you who are just joining our August group, welcome. We appreciate it. So come on down. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. All right. Well, Jay, uh, we had actually a fair number of compliance stories this week, so perhaps we can uh, be less somber and hop on into it. Uh, Compliance Week had just a plethora of articles about Wells Fargo. And when I said this is the scandal that may never end, it it may never. Everyone, of course, knows about the fraudulent accounts scandal. We're in the third CEO since then. Two Wells Fargo board members who were scheduled to testify this week resigned before they testified to avoid congressional testimony, um, including a former um, Fed uh, president, they basically uh, wanted, didn't want to do what the Fed and OCC wanted to try to remediate Wells Fargo. We had uh, the testimony of the new president, Charles Schraff, and he said that he was uh, deeply disturbed, or they found Wells Fargo past behavior deeply disturbing. And, of course, he took no accountability for that past behavior because he wasn't there. Um, and he promised, we'll, we'll do better. We won't, we won't be bad going forward. Uh, that's what the last two CEOs said. Uh, breaking news, um, Kyle Brassard, uh, over at, um, or Brassard over at Compliance Week reports today that Wells Fargo ended its wild week with a new general counsel appointment. And then we also linked to an article from uh, Jacqueline Jager. She wrote it a little bit earlier uh, in February, but it had six um, key compliance takeaways, and I thought that might be a good way to sort of wrap this up. Number one, in compliance, walking the walk is more important than talking the talk. Two, sales pressure in a toxic culture inevitably turns into illegal and ethical conduct. We'll have more on that later in a piece from Mike Volkoff. Three, rewarding unethical conduct encourages unethical conduct. Can you imagine that? Four, no policies and procedures means no compliance controls. Five, existing policies and procedures cannot exist only on paper. That's, of course, what everyone who wants to have a compliance defense wants, which is the paper program, which is what Wells Fargo had. And six, ensure proper training and education in relevant areas. So um, lots to continue to digest about this matter, Jay. I do not think we've seen the end of it. Uh, Just a tumultuous week for Wells Fargo, and they're probably the only ones that are uh, uh, glad that the coronavirus knocked them off the front page. So uh, next up, we've got a story for our, from our good friend Dylan Tokar over the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And uh, the John Wood Group PLC has reserved $46 million to cover costs associated with possible settlements with U.S., Brazilian, and Scottish authorities, the oil field services company said. The settlements would resolve probes by five authorities and three companies rather three countries. The company said it couldn't yet estimate the financial impact of a separate settlement with the UK's serious fraud office. The investigation stemmed from media reports in 2019, rather 2016, centered around the Monaco-based oil services firm UniOil, which frequently pops up in our podcast. And the company was alleged to have paid bribes to obtain business on behalf of many clients in the energy sector. In early 2017, the U.S. Justice Department and SEC began requesting information from engineering firm Amic Foster Wheeler PLC, which Wood Group acquired later that year, 
in conjunction with its use of unioil and other agents in the Middle East. Separately, Aberdeen's Scotland-based Wood Group conducted an internal investigation into its own unioil issues in September of 2017 and informed Scottish prosecutors of the findings of its internal investigation, Wood Group said in a report filed Tuesday. The group has since submitted a report to Scottish prosecutors about possible bribery and corruption offensives that it may have committed. Unioil declined to comment, of course, and other companies have come under investigation in connection with their unioil dealings. Last year, Honeywell International said U.S. authorities were investigating a company's prior engagement with the unioil unit in Algeria, among other things. And a former unioil manager and two former employees of the Dutch oil company SBM Offshore NV are currently standing trial in the U.K., one corruption-related, on corruption-related offenses. They have, of course, denied the SFO's charges. SBM in 2017 agreed to pay $238 million criminal fine to resolve bribery violations, including with respect to unit oil. So uh, I don't think we've seen the end of unit oil. Uh, it's another one of those gifts that keep on giving. And uh, next up, Tom, why don't you tell us about uh, whether or not unified transaction monitoring is a panacea. So, Jay, this is a very interesting new development. It comes out of uh, the Netherlands. The um, it's, it's reported in Corporate Compliance Insights by a woman named Sujata Dasgupta, and she works for Tata Consulting. The uh, five banks in uh, – five Dutch banks, ABN AMRO, Rabobank, ING, Triodos Bank, and Volksbank uh, have been under a lot of regulatory scrutiny around their anti-money laundering. So they banded together in something called Transaction Monitoring Netherlands uh, to be the first of its kind to use uh, where transactions of multiple financial institutions are going to be monitored under the same umbrella with information shared across by them. It's this utility is in a feasibility study, so we're kind of early in the process, but it really provides a um, way for continuous monitoring across the banking sector. Obviously, uh, Netherlands, smaller country than the United States. Nevertheless, it could be something that could really help in the global fight against money laundering. And the implications, of course, are in the global fight against bribery and corruption. So we're going to keep an eye on this uh, because the what it is, Jay, is obviously pooling an even larger amount of data, but using artificial intelligence to identify patterns that uh, one bank might uh, have in conjunction with another bank and, of course, never know about it. So an interesting development, uh, a very specific response to a, a, a um, Confined problem because confined in one country. Nevertheless, as uh, Ms. Sajuta ends her article, an interesting journey lies ahead. So, uh, Tom, when you were in school, were you one of those guys who'd like to diagram sentences? No. Okay. I, f- I forgot the art of it, but hopefully Millie and Michaela <clears throat> will refresh my memory when they get to that. Uh, we've got an interesting piece coming to us from... Bill Steinman at the FCPA blog. And his question he asks is, every email another FCPA violation? 
Last month, while all eyes in the FCPA world were on the acquittal of former Alstom executive Lawrence Hoskins and the U.S. District Court for the District of Connecticut, a far more significant FCPA decision was being delivered a bit further down the coast by Judge Kevin McNulty of New Jersey. In the case U.S. versus Colburn and Schwartz, Judge McNulty held that when it comes to charging defendants with violating the FCPA, the relevant question isn't the number of bribes paid, but the number of calls made or emails sent. Uh, we've looked at this case before, and Messiers Cogburn and Schwartz garnered a great deal of attention. Both are former executives of Cognizant Technology, which itself entered into an FCPA settlement with the SEC in 2019. What has drawn attention to the case against Colbert and Schwartz is that in 2015, the former was Cognizant's president and CEO, and the later was its chief officer. Direct participation by such senior executives in alleged bribery scheme is always noteworthy. It is doubly so when one of those executives is the company's head lawyer. Uh, what comes down to we're looking at here is when they talked about the different counts, uh, the last one con contained three different emails, and Judge Coburn uh, decided to not only diagram the sentence, but look at this as a logic problem. And the common example cited is the concept of mul multiplicity and a hypothetical defendant alleged to have stolen $100 from a wa wallet is the same as being indicted on 10 counts for $10. So when faced with the claims of multiplicity, judges must examine the underlying crime appropriate unit of prosecution. In other words, judges ask, what is the fundamental, fun, fundamental wrongful conduct that Congress sought to prohibit? To discern the FCPA's unit of prosecution, Judge Belty turned first to plain language of the statute and no doubt may remind many of uh, middle school grammar class. Um, it's important to bear in mind that the ability of federal prosecutors to pursue multiple charges arises from the same arising from the same bribery scheme does not necessarily mean harsher punishments for those found guilty. While it is true that a defendant can receive a separate sentence for individual FCPA violations, federal judges have discretion when it comes to doling out the time. So uh, in takeaways from here, first, the more counts with which an individual is charged, the greater the likelihood that the government will be able to prove at least some of its case. Indeed, this is one of the reasons why prosecutors like multiple count indictments. And second, more charges result in greater out-of-pocket expenses to the defendant. Defending a one-count indictment generally takes fewer billable hours than def defending a multiple-count indictment. So it's safe to assume that Carbon will pursue an interlocutory appeal, and it remains to be seen if Judge McNally's ruling will stand. As a defense lawyer, uh, Bill Steinman, the writer of this article, understandably is dismayed by his conclusion, but at the same time, he's convinced by the logic. While the Hoskins case may be of interest because it defines the hazy outer limits of FCPA jurisdiction, this order in Mr. Coburn's case has far more significance and practical downside for the vast majority of NFCPA individual defendants. So, Jay, what I found uh, most interesting about the ruling, and indeed Bill pointed out in his article, was that the overall purpose of the FCPA obviously is to prohibit bribery of foreign officials, but the act it criminalizes, or as the judge said, the unit of prosecution 
is making use of interstate commerce in connection with a bribery scheme. So it's not actually the paying of the bribe. It's the uh, the uh, act, rather, the um, making use of interstate commerce. So um, that I'd really not focused on that. I'd focused on the furtherance of an offer to pay or a payment uh, or an authorization of giving anything of value. So uh, very interesting. Uh, Jay, if I could also shout out to Bill himself because he was recently promoted to senior editor at the FCPA blog, longtime contributing editor, and now uh, a kick upstairs um, uh, joining uh, Jessica Till. Tillotman and Andy Spaulding as uh, senior editors uh, at the FCPA blog. So shout out to Bill uh, for that, Jay. Great. So next up, Tom, uh, OCC issues some excellence guidance around third parties. What is the coolest guy in compliance Matt Kelly have to say on radical compliance? Well, you know, it wouldn't be this week in FCPA without a contribution from the coolest guy in compliance. And once again, a great article from Matt um, I read this uh, guidance from the OCC, that's the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, back when it was released in March 5th, and it really is a very interesting article. It it talks about the management of third parties, something near and dear to the ABC compliance specialist's heart. Um, but the, the thing that, uh, and it was a good review of that, but what the OCC focused on was what Matt calls fourth parties, which is, <coughs> excuse me, the um, subcontractors to your third parties. Uh, you may not have visibility into them, but you would have risk around them. So the due diligence you perform on your third party should include an assessment of how well they perform due diligence on their third parties. Uh, there was some uh, information around the uh, roles and responsibilities of uh, a program Hey, Tom. Uh, Next up, we've got a series that we've been following from the Risk and Compliance Platform Europe. This comes to us from our colleague, Gert Vermullion, and uh, he's talking about wow moments in ethics and compliance. Uh, Often ethics and compliance officers only end up in the news when things have gone wrong. Many people don't realize that ethics and compliance officers also prevent numerous crimes and unethical practices, sometimes at the risk of being fired or risking your health or even your lives. When Gert was about 10 years old, his uncle Ad, and then till then, the only person in his family with a university education, gave him a copy of the Dutch language version of the Iliad and Odyssey. As he uh, got further along in his academic career and went to university, he chose Greek language as one of the subjects for his final exams. And he found it enriching to read the works of Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and other Greek philosophers in their Greek language. But it was also difficult. You don't do it for relaxation. Frankly, when he went to university to study economics, he had lost track of Greek philosophers. But talking about culture and ethics and behavior is one thing, but how do you change a culture? And when can you stimulate employees ethically? A couple years ago, he became one of the founding members of the expert group on culture and behavior of the Netherlands. And they regularly talk about this subject. Over the next years, they developed a toolbox containing practical tools that ethics and compliance officers can use to influence the culture of their organization. Recently, they decided to open up this toolbox to anybody who is interested. 
and when Gert found himself being a presenter at a KPMG conference, he gained the respect of those who, in, who were in attendance who broke out into applause when he recited by heart the beginning of the Odyssey in the ancient Greek language. When he showed a picture of a 16-year-old of his 16-year-old daughter Helena, whom he named after Helena from the Iliad, it was strongly advised to watch out for somebody called Paris who could come along. The conference was completely sold out with 220 attendees, and he gave the best keynote that he had ever given in his life. So in his career so far, on the very same grounds where the Greek philosophers once used to wander, not too bad from a, for a small guy from a small town in the Netherlands to be, who used to be shy and stutter, and now he had a real wow moment amongst his colleagues. So, Jay, uh, I alluded to a post by Mike Volkov a little bit earlier when I was talking about Wells Fargo. And let me uh, just dive into that because Mike looked at the dangers of a hyper-focused sales culture. Clearly, that was one of the problems at Wells Fargo. And in Mike's post on corruption, crime, and compliance, he took it in uh, not only the Wells Fargo direction, but also in the direction of um, uh, fraudulent accounting and lying about your sales. And uh, he talked about the recent example of uh, Armor All, but going back to Valent Pharmaceuticals. And, but it all turns on having incentives that were are skewed, uh, which put so much pressure on employees that they can't meet their sales goals uh, without cheating. I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, story I once heard of the regional manager in the Far East who is uh, alleged to have said, if I violate the code of conduct, I may or may not get caught. If, if I violate the code of conduct and I'm caught, I may or may not be terminated. But if I miss my sales numbers for two quarters, I'll be fired. So when you have that sort of pressure, uh, that's what leads to people cutting corners. And companies need to take a really uh, a good look at a healthy balance between achievement, sales incentives, and commitment to positive culture as a basic requirement. So uh, a good r- reminder from Mike uh, on that point. So uh, next up, we have a client alert from three attorneys at Baker and McKenzie. This comes to us from Kerry Contini, Regan DeMoss, and Alicia Fowler. And this was written to back on March 3rd. So it's uh, at the beginning of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. Of course, things have gotten uh, much worse in the last week, but the sentiments of this article still hold true. Uh, with travel restrictions becoming increasingly tighter at airports, with countries either imposing mandatory health screening on travelers arriving from certain countries or denying entry to passengers who have visited other countries such as China, Italy, and other regions of the reported outbreak. This outbreak has also created uncertainty and fear about the health of the world economy. With factories in China closed since the Lunar New Year, it is expected that global stock markets will continue to fall. And as the world considers how to best respond to these adverse health and economic events, global companies may want to consider potential compliance risks that the coronavirus poses to their supply chain. Global emergencies like this outbreak frequently cannot be predicted, but companies can take proactive steps to help them adequately respond to such events when they arise. Companies may want to consider the following. First, use other existing partners in your supply chain. Consider if there are other manufacturers in your chain that can temporarily satisfy production or sourcing needs. Two, properly vet new suppliers. Alternatively, if you must look to new suppliers for production, 
appropriate risk-based due diligence checks should be conducted. And three, conduct restricted party screenings. Screen new parties against applicable restricted parties lists and incorporate them into your restricted party screening processes to minimize the risk of engaging in transactions that may be prohibited or restricted under current controls or trade sanction laws. Supply shortages create custom risks at borders. Multinational companies typically rely on custom agents and brokers to help them clear merchandise across borders. Here, you need to be focused on improper payments made by third-party custom agents to secure customs clearance. With exports and imports in a lull due to the panic and uncertainty surrounding the coronavirus, the risk of customs-related violations may be high. Urgent circumstances such as these call for decisive company communication to relevant employees and third parties alike, underscoring the company's commitment to following the law and appropriate procedures. By employing an appropriate risk-based approach to due diligence and screening, companies can help ensure that the impact of the novel coronavirus is not exacerbated by additional legal and PR trials resulting from transactions with unreputable and restricted parties. So, Jay, uh, we had an interesting development out of the United Kingdom reported by our colleague uh, Jonathan Roush over on his always uh, excellent Dipping Through, Compl- Dipping Through Geometries blog. I did study geometry, not grammar. Um, and the United Kingdom has uh, is announced uh, an economic crime levy to raise funds for anti-money laundering leisure, le- uh, measures. And what I found interesting, Jay, was we ha- here we're having a specific tax on banks and other firms regulated for AML to raise up to 100 million pounds. That's about $130 million for uh, anti-money laundering measures. And uh, typically in the United States, you don't see this sort of direct taxation. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. And given the severe cutbacks of the conservative uh, governments and their austerity budgets, uh, local law enforcement in the United Kingdom needs an infusion of physical resources just to do proper staffing and tech support on uh, things like uh, AML, dealing with the adaptability and sophistication of money laundering operations. So kudos to the uh, United Kingdom for their levy. Believe it or not, I don't know if these numbers are right, but we have uh, two more banks to join the roles of banks behaving badly, parts 3088 and 3089. Uh, first one is Swedbank or Swedbank, who has notified the U.S. of potential sanction violations. This comes to us from Dominic Chopping and Kristen Broughton over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And it says that Swedbank AB on Wednesday notified the U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Controls, OFAC, of potential sanctions violations regarding $4.8 million of transactions following an internal probe. So next up, Tom, we have two more entries for our ongoing feature, Banks Behaving Badly. They are Swede Bank and Fifth Third. The first one on Swede Bank comes to us from Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance from Dominic Chopping and Kristen Broughton. Swede Bank AB said Wednesday that it has notified OFAC of potential sanctions violating violations regarding $4.8 million of transactions following an internal probe. The law firm of Clifford Chance has been conducting an investigation since February 2019, which includes clients' transactions and activities 
from the 12-year period of 2007 to 2019. The law firm examined all U.S. dollar-denominated transactions from the Stockholm-based lenders, three Baltic subsidiaries, and Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. As part of the investigation, Swede Bank said Wednesday that Clifford Chance had found 856 transactions worth $4.8 million that constitute potential sanctions violations. This shows that the bank's prophecies for Know Your Customer, transaction monitoring, and internal governance and control had shortcomings. That Swede Bank self-disclosed the potential violations to U.S. authorities will likely benefit the company when it comes to calculating potential fines, said Daniel Wager, Vice President of Global Financial Crime Compliance at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. There's a very strong calculation in favor of identifying broadly and bringing it forward promptly to show cooperation. Swede Bank had been working to strengthen its anti-money laundering controls after a report last year by Swedish broadcaster SVT that said the customers moved at least $4 billion in suspicious funds, much of it through Russia, through the bank accounts. And the story here on Fifth Third Bank comes to us from Stacy Cowley at the New York Times. And it says, for years, Fifth Third Bank large regional bank in Ohio opened author- unauthorized accounts in customers' names as part of an aggressive sales strategy that fostered credit cards, online banking services, and other products pe- Other products were sold to people without their knowledge, according to a lawsuit filed on Wednesday. The bank, quote, set goals that thousands of employees could not achieve and penalized those who fell short. Does this sound familiar to anybody? It sounds like the first story Tom started it off with, which is Wells Fargo. A person familiar with the bank's operations said it had begun investigating potential unauthorized transactions in 2010 after its internal compliance system raised alarms. What's kind of ironic is these counts involved less than $30,000 in improper customer charges that were ultimately waived or reimbursed to the customers years ago, the bank said. Even while a single unauthorized account is one too many, we took the appropriate and decisive action to address the situation. So hopefully things go a little bit better at Fifth Third Bank than they are going from Wells Fargo. Uh, Tom, next up, we've got something here about Compliance Podcast Network. It's a new month and you're continuing ahead. What did you talk about in this week's podcast? So, Jay, in the month of March, uh, we should note, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, I'm looking at the topic of innovation and compliance. On Monday, I looked at compliance capabilities needed to use AI programs. Uh, Tuesday, four practices for delivering an AI solution. On Wednesday, finding compliance patterns in rake leaves, one of my favorite phrases, Uh, on Thursday, using AI and compliance contracting, and today, uh, was taming complexity and compliance. Uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel, so check us out if you want to binge listen to them. Once again, sponsored this month um, by our good friends over at Affiliated Monitors. Uh, Jay, I don't think we have any travel speeches or uh, other to report in this episode. What say you? Um, I say that uh, to all our listeners out uh, in about in the world, in the U.S. Um, Our thoughts are with you. We hope that you are safe. We hope that you are uh, taking the the proper 
precautions for you to be able to join us again next week. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 196, for the week ending March 13th, 2020, the We Won't Screw You Again edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. We've linked to all of the articles in the show notes, so if you want additional reading, please feel free to check them out. Also, check out my 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance program this month focusing on innovation and compliance. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.